Hacking Consciousness. Exploring the mind through the prism of science, technology, meditation, and psychedelics. Welcome to Hacking Consciousness. I'm your host, Adrian Baker. I'm very excited about today's guest. Rachel Harris, PhD, is a clinical psychologist and the author of Listening to Ayahuasca, New Hope for Depression, Addiction, PTSD, and Anxiety. Rachel has really written a wonderful book for people who either have been working with ayahuasca and are trying to make sense of the experiences, which is the position I found myself in, or if you're someone who is potentially interested in ayahuasca, but really wants some more information before you make that big decision. Or perhaps if you know someone for whom ayahuasca has been an important part of their path or they're considering it, and this can help you get some kind of context on the potential benefits and motivations for working with it. What I really like about Rachel's book is that she is very honestly and earnestly wrestling with how to make sense of the ayahuasca experience and its remarkable benefits through her own framework, which is really the Western medical model. And for anyone, whether you're a trained psychologist or medical professional or not, but it doesn't matter if you're still raised in the West and you have that particular way of thinking where we have to arrive at certain conclusions, not only with evidence, but a very reductionist model, which has many benefits, but it often can't explain many of the holistic solutions that different medical systems and remedies produce, whether it's from the East or somewhere like South America. And she's just very honest in sort of saying, here's what I know, here's what I don't know. Here is what I find to be the benefits of ayahuasca, yet I can't totally make sense of it through my own training and viewpoint. And part of that drives me a little bit crazy or I don't know what to make of it. And I really found that honesty and candor refreshing. And I could resonate with that from my own experience as well, where it felt so clearly true. And I had no doubt about many of the benefits, but at the same time, it was hard to explain not only to myself and to others. So we had a lot to talk about and we unpacked quite a lot in the roughly hour that we spoke. I sincerely hope that you enjoy this conversation. I certainly did, and I really hope that it's a benefit to many people out there who have either worked with ayahuasca or are considering it. I would strongly recommend reading Rachel's book, Listening to Ayahuasca. I will include that information in the show notes. And please, as always, I would love to hear from you with your thoughts about this episode, which you can send to the Hacking Conscious with no G. So that's H-A-C-K-I-N-C-O-N-S-C-I-O-U-S at gmail.com. Or you can use that same handle on Twitter to share your thoughts. As always, would really appreciate any support, whether it is writing, taking a minute or two to write a review on iTunes, Google Music Store, or Stitcher is a huge help as is sharing the podcast on your own social media platforms and being willing to make a contribution on Patreon. And the Patreon page is patreon.com slash hackingconsciousness. If people gave $1 an episode, this could be a sustainable project, and I would really love to avoid having advertisements, if at all possible. So thank you so much for your support, for listening, and now I give you my conversation with Rachel Harris. Rachel, how are you? Hi, Adrian. Thank you for reaching out to me. Thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. And I'm so excited to talk to you because I absolutely loved your book, Listening to Ayahuasca. I felt that it really, having been on my first ayahuasca retreat in May, I felt that it really spoke to a lot of the questions that I had and, and was a really honest way of engaging with some of those questions from both an indigenous perspective and a Western perspective. I liked how you sort of wrestled with how you didn't know to interpret some of these experiences and you were really honest about that. Oh yeah. I still suffer with that. 
I could tell you a little story about that. It's a pretty recent one. It's slightly painful. I was just recently at Bioneers in California, their national conference. I was on a panel with Jeremy Narby, who I imagine you know who he is. For sure. Yes, exactly. Thank you. (laughs) And I gave my little spiel about You know, in my research study, three quarters of the people talked about an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca, grandmother ayahuasca. So I did my little 15, 20 minutes, and he got up and basically said, grandmother ayahuasca is a misnomer. (laughs) He kind of undid everything I said. And he spoke from an indigenous point of view, even though he's, of course, a Westerner, he's very well grounded in indigenous culture. And he said that the indigenous people consider the spirit of ayahuasca to be a snake. And I thought, well, that, you know, maybe, maybe the spirit of ayahuasca is appearing differently in different cultures. And, you know, how do we have an an argument about this, (laughs) or even begin to discuss it. So that was, and and then he sat back down next to me, and he turns to me, and he says, was that okay? (laughs) In a very sweet, polite way. And of course, I said, yes, I I expected him to contradict me, because I I knew his position. I had data from Westerners in Western context. And in the Western context, the the cultures describing the spirit of ayahuasca as a grandmother or sometimes just a plain mother. And sometimes, I didn't even want to go here with him, sometimes as a lover. So that's even a different conceptualization. So, you know, there's a lot of mystery involved in this medicine and in in the culture that grows around it. And so that's the latest painful aspect of my struggle. It's funny. My first reaction to that is, why does it have to be either or? You know, yes, I mean, that's a good my question. experience of ayahuasca, you know, was definitely that it was many forms. You know, there was this maternal aspect to it. But, you know, I'll be honest, I actually did experience it as a it was a lover, but like not in a sexual sense, but. There was something erotic to it about different points. I mean, all of this is, sounds just totally insane. I'm sure to anyone who's never I done know, it. I know, understand. But this is not the first. This is not the first time I've heard that. I mean, people say as as a lover, as a seductress. I've heard it before. I'm sure that ayahuasca. I, I also hear how it speaks to you in the language that really resonates with you. So if people also are are really firmly rooted in sort of certain ways of thinking or dualistic ways of thinking, perhaps in some ways it might reinforce that. But for me, I just, it was all about experiencing, since I study in a non-dual teaching, it's a non-dual form of tantric Hinduism, and that I, I experienced it both as you would call it like the Maha Shakti, like it's, it's like this ineffable sense of the great energy, which you could think about it in very sort of scientific, you know, concrete material terms. But it also it also took on all of these different forms. And it's certainly a common theme among people in my group who are all Westerners that they experienced ayahuasca not only as a snake, but as all these different animals, in particular like a panther or a big cat, that that's something I experienced and other people did. And it seems to be a common theme. And so I just, why would it necessarily be an either or thing as well? That very framing seems to be a bit limited. Right, exactly. Is the phrase, the great energy, is that in caps? Well, let's see, you'd call it in this tradition, I mean, in a lot of Indian, especially tantric traditions, there's a word, you know, Shakti, and it really refers to this energy that animates every aspect of the universe. And this conception of energy really maps on pretty well of what we know about physics today in a lot of ways. You know, it's this vibrating, pulsating energy that permeates everything. And so Maha just means great. And so Shakti takes many different forms from the micro to the macro, and it, it takes all these different forms as goddesses. But when you say Maha Shakti, that's like sort of getting at that great, I absolute, see. non-dual sense of it that's totally beyond form. 
Great, great. The phrase I love that I learned from a linguist talking about Native American conceptualization, because in their language, they use verbs far more than nouns. And so they refer, I think, to that same non-dual essence as the great mysterious. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I've only read a little bit about Native American religions, but there definitely seem to be some parallels from what I can tell. Right. So it's interesting how the languages capture that non-dual essence and in, in, with different attempts. <laughs> and, and I agree it with really you is. that, yeah, people report all different symbols from all different manifestations during their visions of ayahuasca. And so let's talk about how you interpret these symbols. I mean, you know, I've just told folks in the introduction that your background is in psychotherapy, but perhaps you can give them just a little more context and then talk about how that really influences how you interpret this. And of course, I'm wondering specifically how much influence Jung has had on you with his emphasis on symbolism and archetypes. Right. Well, you know, I, I have a research background, and that's what enabled me to do the research study I did. And that was located in North America. I asked Westerners. It was a Western research study. And I asked the therapy questions, such as, how are you changed? How are you different? How is your life different? How are your relationships different? What happens after the ceremony? So I was less concerned with their experience and their visualization than I was with the therapeutic effects afterwards, the benefits. And so that was the therapeutic question I asked. My background is out of Esalen in the 1960s, the late 60s. That community, Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, was heavily influenced at that time by Fritz Perls and Gestalt therapy. And he pretty much didn't interpret symbols across the board. He allowed people to discover their own meanings for what they experienced. So I have really stayed with that. So whether people report a dream or they do what I call a, a therapeutic drawing, I don't interpret the colors or the symbols or the story. I have people find their own voice within their experience. But Jung is also a great influence for me. And the statement that I I think describes his approach the best, and certainly his red book with his own therapeutic drawings and symbols and and his descent into his own unconscious, is very, it looks very similar to what people experience with ayahuasca. But the statement that guides me the most is he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the therapeutic healing, that the approach to the numinous, to the sacred, is what heals. So that cuts through a lot of psychotherapy jargon. It's the approach to the numinous, and the numinous is that experience of wholeness, of that essential energy, the what did what did you call the the great mysterious thing is what I called oh, it. The you Maha called Shakti. it the Mahashakti. Yeah, so it's the approach to the numinous, to the experience of that essence. That's what's therapeutic. And the research into psychedelics these days that's coming out of Hopkins especially is looking at the complete mystical experience. And that pretty much, by the complete mystical experience, they're describing what Jung meant by the approach to the numinous. It's an ineffable experience, as you use that word, a sense of unity, ego disillusion into oneness. When people experience that, then their lives change. It's not even necessarily they change their lives. Their lives spontaneously change. Now, that's a very different process than cognitive behavior therapy, you know, where we decide to think differently. To say their lives spontaneously changed is a whole different viewpoint on therapeutic process. And yet it can be documented in very concrete ways. So one of the most concrete ways that came out of Hopkins is the people who experienced a complete mystical experience were more likely to quit smoking cigarettes. And that's pretty concrete and difficult to do. So that was their pilot study. They'll be increasing the numbers. That was with an N of 15, and they'll expand that research. But that's sort of what happens is 
after a complete mystical experience, their relationship to their addiction to tobacco changes. Now, that's an interesting process. That's very interesting. I know I've heard similar, similarly positive results with alcohol out of the team at NYU, which is pretty remarkable. I'm thinking yes, about... Yes, people, people, people wake up the next morning after a ceremony and say, I see now alcohol is a poison. I'm never touching it again. That's a spontaneous shift. It's remarkable. We, we don't know how to do that in a psychotherapy session. So it's, it's actually even closer to AA hitting bottom, where there's a, a, which is also a mystical experience, a, just a darker one. But it's a transformative experience, and people change after those. Yeah, I'm really thinking about how this has implications for what you're saying in terms of this kind of fundamental model, which is that the numinous, the sacred is somehow really wrapped up in the process of healing. I'm thinking the implications of that for what I imagine is a big part of your audience for your book and my audience for the show and certainly the big demographic that's using ayahuasca in urban areas in North America, which is this is a very educated crowd and now I'm generalizing because I'm sure many of these people are into religion or at least spirituality and not religion. But I know a lot of these people <laughs> tend to be secular or traditionally not into organized religion. And so the idea that that healing, that personal growth could somehow be wrapped up in something that's sacred and that scientific studies, which is something that really validates their worldview, might actually be underscoring that inseparability might be something that's that some people are a little bit resistant to well it's it's fascinating I, you know m my study was published in 2012 in the journal of psychoactive drugs and i asked some of those questions of course i collected data on your education level and your your religion or spirituality orientation so i had 81 subjects and they all had, well, they didn't all, but most of them, I mean, like almost 60% had graduate degrees. So that's a, an unusual, that's not a, a normal group. That's a, that's a very, it's a self-selected group of highly educated people. And they sort of covered the board from Buddhism to, to all different kinds of spiritual disciplines. A good number of people wrote long essays for me and basically said something like this, I've always been an atheist, and now I see that the universe is more mystical than I ever imagined, and my whole worldview has shifted. I mean, they go on in much more poetic ways. But there's sort of a revelation that happens. It's not as if they believe in God or that they become true believers, but their own inner spirituality blossoms. And they have a real sense of the beauty and the mystery of the universe and their place in it. So it's this lovely shift in worldview and changes spontaneously happen along with that shift. Yes. I mean, so much of, once again, just like what you said in the book resonates, so much of what you're saying right now resonates and it's throwing me off my normal <laughs> role as an interviewer because I find myself sharing more. You being the therapist, you've probably skillfully shifted the, the roles on me. But that is something that totally happened to me as well. And it was not just me. I mean, it was also some of my friends who were on the retreat. But a big thing for me was going into that experience. I was, and this was a result of sort of years of studying, I mean, I really identified myself as a, a Buddhist atheist. And so you could say I was into certain religions or spirituality, but I was, you know, I'm also a regular reader and listener of Sam Harris, if you know Sam Harris, who's yeah, sure. sure one of the new atheists. And so, and I still do have really <laughs> a lot of problems with organized religion and think that we need to talk about it more, but it absolutely shook up those diehard views around atheism. Not that I then interpret that experience and then I'm like, oh, I know there's God or I've communed with the divine because I think that's just, you have to be careful how you interpret some of these. But it definitely, I heard Dennis McKenna say recently that 
what ayahuasca and psychedelics will teach you is that you don't know shit. Like you think you know shit, but you really don't know shit. And <laughs> I think Dennis's point just about basic humility is definitely one way of framing it. And I would also say that a real clear message of the medicine was that there is so much magic and mystery in this universe and you don't know it. And I will show it to you like piece by piece. <laughs> and it was really just That's great. powerful. <laughs> I will over and you overwhelm can take it you as with a it. <laughs> kind of thing too. You know, the way he talks about awe, it need not be traditionally yes. religious as we conceive of it. Yes. Yes. And that's, even though that transformative worldview or transformed worldview leads to therapeutic changes, we don't really know how that happens. We don't know the steps. There's something mysterious about that awakening and revelation. So we don't really know how, how does a complete mystical experience enable somebody to stop smoking. Tobacco is one of the strongest addictions. How does it lead them to, to be able to, to rise above that urge? And, and people say, I'm not controlling the urge to get a cigarette. I don't want one. It's different. And we, as, as psychotherapists, we don't really understand that process. It's spontaneous and we don't know the steps in between, if there are some. When I presented, I was at two conferences this past weekend. I was at Bioneers, and I was also at Science and Non-Duality. And I present the findings from my study, and the therapeutic findings that we understand that are part of normal psychotherapy are that people, they felt they were kinder to themselves. Their capacity for self-compassion increased, so they were less critical, less harsh. That was one. They experienced a relief in moods, less depression, less anxiety, and their interpersonal relationships improved. Those are all the things we look for as a result of psychotherapy. But in addition to that, people's addictive behavior was reduced or stopped altogether, whether it was, again, cigarettes, alcohol, marijuana was different, that didn't change. But certainly alcohol was the big one. A number of people reported some sex addiction issues and that they stopped that. And people also, their health behaviors improved, so they ate better and exercised more. And those, the dealing with addictions and health behaviors, psychotherapists don't do too well with those goals. And so people reported changes that are beyond psychotherapy. And then the biggest one is this transformative worldview that's way beyond the realm of what happens in a psychotherapy session. And that's part of, as, as you say, the magic and mystery of the ayahuasca experience. Do you think that, I mean, on the one hand, I could see how, and I'm thinking now not only about psychotherapists, but generally just scientists who are anyone who's, you know, whether it's neuroscientists or other scientists who are in this field of psychedelic research, on the one hand, People must be very excited by the promise. And on the other hand, I'm imagining some sort of resistance to ways in which psychedelics, but specifically ayahuasca, don't conform to the Western medical model. And of course, a big thing with ayahuasca, as opposed to, say, psilocybin, is it's not this controlled substance that we can you know, measure out in exact micrograms and subject to all of the rigors and controls of normal scientific studies. And sometimes when I hear scientists talk, I get the sense that they have their own sort of <laughs> built-in worldviews and resistance to certain things that might frustrate that worldview, just like religious people might. Do you notice that resistance among some scientists, maybe, of course, not necessarily those who are really passionate about the research, but just the scientific community in general? Well, every, every scientist has their own worldview. I mean, we can't, we all have our own individual worldviews that we are very committed to upholding. <laughs> and it takes a very strong experience to sort of break us out of those worldviews. Our, our, I mean, certainly we're very attached to how we construct reality. So, I mean, this, this veers into Buddhism pretty quickly about Go there. <laughs> how we, 
Yeah, <laughs> how we create our reality and then are very attached to it. And that includes how we construct our own personal ego and identity. And so part of the research that I'm really, that I'm most excited about is from England. And it's a young researcher, Robin Carhart-Harris. And you can find him giving talks on the internet, on YouTube. And he presents sometimes at conferences, and he has a lot of scientific articles. He's highly productive. But he has a background. It's a British education, so I don't really understand it. He has a background in psychoanalysis and then a Ph.D. in cognitive neuroscience. So he's using a functional MRI machine while people are under the influence, mostly LSD and psilocybin because it's so much more controlled. We Researchers have not figured out how to control ayahuasca in vivo. But Robin Carhart-Harris is beginning to zero in on something that appears to be very similar to the, to the concept of a complete mystical experience that Hopkins is using. But because he's more psychodynamically oriented, he calls it ego disillusion. There's kind of a melting, a dissolution of the ego that allows for the unity that is part of that mystical experience. And I think he's, he's beginning to get a glimpse into how these experiences are so therapeutic, that they allow us to have a little objective, sort of like a little mini vacation from our identity and, and clinging to our egos, because we certainly maintain them every day. And a lot of our, our neurological activity is actively supporting and protecting our ego identity. And, and Robin Carhart Harris has kind of identified that that's located in the default mode network, which is a network. It's not one anatomical place in the brain. It's a network throughout the brain where we all our self-talk comes out of that network. And that's where he, he basically says, this is, the, this is the neurological parallel to Freud's concept of the ego. This is who we think we are. And under psychedelic influence, when people are put in a functional MRI machine, that network is quieted. So that's part, that's the neurological counterpart to the experience of ego dissolution that allows for that unity mystical experience. And I think it gives us a break from how we drive ourselves crazy, just to put it bluntly. And evidently, that default mode network is going most of the time, at least 60% of our awake time is spent with that default mode network chugging along. You know, when we're driving, when we're washing dishes, it's, it's upholding our ego and our identity pretty tenaciously. So the psychedelics give us a break for that. And that opens up the possibility of new neural connections. Yeah, it's really interesting. Everyone is seemingly talking about Robin Carhart Harris in, in the in his research. It's it's like that is that is Oh great. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> it's just my impression of really reading a lot of psychedelic research and then talking to people. It's like that's the person, even almost more so than Roland Griffith, who, you know, was kind of the first one who made a big splash, like everyone mentions Robin Carhart Harris in that because I think it is really powerful that we can pinpoint this area of the brain and be like ah that's it like that's why it's doing what it's doing you know yeah he he seems to have a more in-depth intuitive psychological understanding Roland Griffiths is a psychopharmacologist right so he's done interesting work on what's the optimum dose to produce a complete mystical experience. So you can see he's very dose related as any pharmacologist would be. And so he's he's really identified that and he's he's actually refined it that if you I can't remember for sure whether you work up to that dose or you work down to it which is better, but he's clarified that. I, I really have to look that up again to get clear on it. So you can see he's very dose specific and that's his that's his orientation. And, you know, I know a couple of people on his team, they don't really have a strong 
very experienced therapist. They have Bill Richardson, who has had a psychotherapy practice for a long time and a long history of research with psychedelics, but he's almost more of a philosopher than a natural therapist. Whereas Carhart Harris has real analytical insight into what he's looking at. It's a, a really different orientation. That's really interesting. Yeah, I actually didn't know about Robin's background as a in psychotherapy because I knew he had a PhD in neuroscience. And yeah, the, I don't know that he's done an, an, you know, a supervised internship, but the way it's described is he has a master's in psychoanalysis. I have no idea what that means, but it clearly influence, influences how he interprets his hard data. That's really interesting. And also what you said about Rolling Griffith, that would make sense, of course, how they're training in right. their research. Right. You know, yeah. And another thing I've noticed with Robin's research, and he just had another finding come out to this effect. And of course, it's also corroborating what other teams are finding out of Johns Hopkins and NYU is the power of psychedelics to work with depression. And you talk about this in your book. And so I'd love to get into this a little bit, but specifically, I'd love to talk about some of the language around this because people in your book often describe it as a form of deprogramming or reprogramming. People do this with Ibogaine a lot too. Oh, really? Yeah. And I, interesting, I think isn't it? there's something, it's really interesting because I've sort of reflected on, you know, given the title of the show, Hacking Consciousness, I'm very interested in exploring psychedelics through different frameworks, and those include traditional indigenous ones, but also modern ones, including thinking about psychedelics as a form of technology sometimes, which I understand why people are resistant to that, but I think just trying different frameworks can just sometimes give you a little bit of insight, even if you don't want to buy into it or buy into it wholesale. And I think- Oh, I I think it's a great metaphor. Do you? Okay, let's talk about that because I I think there's something interesting about psychedelics as kind of like rebooting you, you know, rebooting your software. Yes, right, right. Yes, it's a a reboot of software and whatever, now you have to help me here with the right terms, but it's about the software and not the system. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, the software and not the hardware. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. It's how we've learned to construct ourselves, but it's not our essence. So that's how I I would, that would be the parallel that I would say. I think we actually, you know, with our childhood experiences and our early attachment experiences, we literally find a way to survive in, in the world we're born into. And maybe it even goes earlier into prenatal experiences but certainly we, we develop, we create, we construct ourselves to survive in whatever environment we're in. And that's, the, that's our programming. And we, con- we contribute to that. We are in part creators of it. But it's not who we are from a, a sacred, numinous, spiritual point of view. Right. That really makes me think of Ram Dass's first time working with psychedelics. And it's, of course, relevant. Ram Das was, you know, in background in psychotherapy and or psychology, at least. And he talks yeah, about at least. <laughs> his first acid trip where he was just sort of sitting on the couch and he saw all these different roles that he played one after the nev- another. And he thought, oh, that's interesting, but I don't really need it. You know, and it was just like shedding layers of his ego. And there's something interesting about that, the way psychedelics can do yes. that. I think that's it exactly. I think that's a real important part of what's therapeutic about all the psychedelics is we, we get that chance to go outside the system that we've built and take a more objective look at it and, and really say, well, do I need to be that way? Is that really helpful? And do I choose to be that way? Right, right. You know... And we can think about this in Western psychological terms as cultivating self-awareness and emotional intelligence, or we can think about it, and this is where we get a lot of parallels to Eastern contemplative practices, in particular Buddhism, which you mentioned earlier. And, you know, some Buddhists and even including Western practitioners will talk about how, and of course, this is a typical religious 
traditional viewpoint, right? A more conservative one that you shouldn't ingest any intoxicants. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think from your background (laughs) in terms of not just the ethics of it, but in terms of how that, does it make the experience any more or less valid having it quote unquote naturally through meditation versus, you know, ingesting a, a substance that gives rise to that experience? But most of the American Buddhist teachers got their start with psychedelics, and then they went into... Totally, yeah. (laughs) Totally, right. So there's that. But early on in in the early 60s, I think Houston Smith is the one who did just an elegant, small little research piece where he took descriptions of a psychedelic experience and descriptions of classical, religious, mystical experiences. And religion professors were not able to differentiate them. So they were literally the same. Oh, interesting. Is this the Marsh Chapel experience? No, 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 no. It's separate from that. It grew out of his own experience with Timothy Leary, where he, after his first experience, he basically said, this is the first time I've experienced what I've been talking about. And then the question arose, is is this the same as an unadulterated you know, an earned mystical experience versus an unearned drug-induced one. Judges could not differentiate the descriptions of the mystical experiences. So essentially, it's not that they're similar, they are the same. That was the conclusion from that little bit of research. Interesting. Yeah, I'd love to track that. Yeah, so I'll get it. It's in the book somewhere. I can get it for you. So there's a reference for it. Thank you. Yeah. Along the same way is, I think it was Alan Watts who said, when you get that mystical message, basically, hang up the phone. You know, you don't have to, the problem is continuing to use drugs to go back to that same place. Once we get that message, then we have to find our own inner path to that awakening. Yeah, this is a great point in a whole other topic that I'm a big believer in, and I know that you are and a lot of other people working in the psychedelic space is the importance of integration and how that's not played up enough. Now, I totally think you need psychedelics should be used within some kind of framework, whether it's with spiritual or if you're not into religion, it could be, you know, psychotherapeutic. But I do think that's really important. Now, you raise an interesting question. You know, there's that quote about hanging up the phone from Alan Watts, which I've heard before, and I think there's value to that. But I know in the book... You also talked with a lot of patients and you said, you know, they found themselves at a specific standpoint and you're like, honestly, I think the right answer could just be drinking more medicine. And so do you think it's possible that, I mean, there is so much work to do as a result in certain people, whether it's, whether it's you had a lot of things in your childhood or honestly, just like dropping your ego. I was just listening to Karen Armstrong talk about this. It's just a really hard thing. So isn't there some value? Well, is, isn't that interesting? That's the, the other phrase. Dropping your ego is, is, I think, the same thing as ego dissolution. But it implies a lot of initiation, sort of, I mean, ego strength to drop our ego. It's it's uh, a little convoluted. Yeah, who's the one but doing I think the it, dropping? I think she's, <laughs> yeah, but I think she's referring to the same thing that that breakthrough, and I think it really is a spiritual and a psychological breakthrough to get outside of what we've constructed, and to be able to be free of it and look at look at it more objectively and and spiritually from a totally different perspective. Do you think? that large numbers of people are really able to get to that point. This is sort of mirroring a discussion in in Eastern contemplative traditions as well. You know, people talk about getting to a point where your awareness or a certain state of non-duality is stabilized, where you are, you can call it enlightened or awake. And it's an interesting idea, but I'm just, I wonder to what extent in reality, even the most sincere and dedicated of practitioners actually get there, you know, in life. And so that's why I'm wondering about Alan Watts's 
quote and how feasible that is. Like, I think certain people get there. And then do you think there's something to be said that certain people will always see this as a part of their path throughout the rest of your life? Or do you think that if that's not happening, then you're missing something? You know, I'm I'm in the soup too with this. I mean, I would be right there in, in these kinds of conversations because I, I don't have any answers. And but I can at least describe my confusion. And that is that someone like Alan, you know, a lot of the people we assume are very high spiritual people, their lives are a mess in one way or another. <laughs> and how do we put or, or their behavior is despicable? <laughs> and how do we put that together? So someone can even have a stabilized and and deep sense of awakening and behave badly and do terrible things and manipulate and take advantage of their their followers. I mean, awakening is is not the same as good ethics all the time. And this is and you know, I think it should be, but I I think that's an immature should because what we see is it's not always connected. You know, when we talk about stabilizing and deepening the experience of non-duality, what does it actually mean in practice? This is my dating advice to people, and it's my it's my advice for spiritual groups, is watch the behavior. And for political candidates as well, watch the behavior. Look at the behavior, not what the person says or claims. Watch the behavior. And that's critical. So that's where I would be on that. I I don't I don't really know from my own experience what that means to stabilize and deepen that mystical experience. I mean, I I'm trying to attune to it and and keep it alive during my days. And most of the time, you know, I forget and I'm busy with stupid things like most of us. But that's my current path. That is so true. And I mean, I think that's an important discussion that could honestly be a whole podcast episode unto itself is that distinction between awakening and ethics. I mean, there are many examples of people who are undoubtedly very adept meditators or highly realized, but they clearly did things that are falling so outside of the boundary of ethical behavior, or at least enough to some things that are clearly outside, others that are quite sketchy. And yeah, it's a great point. It raises a lot of questions. (laughs) It raises a lot of questions, but just to simplify it, they harm other people. Right. And that's the behavior to look at. Are they creating more love in the world or are they creating more suffering in the world? Right. And that's how it ties into ego as well. I think the ego is one of my yoga teachers who's fantastic, and he, Richard Freeman, and he really is a good example of, I think, what it's like to be someone who's very humble. And uh, he always says, you know, the ego is very clever. You know, you have to watch out. <laughs> and I, I think that's <laughs> what it is. You know, you even these teachers, they begin to convince themselves that, oh, it's justifiable because it's tantric sex practice and it's really about it's not me taking advantage of them it's this and this i'm giving them my shakti or whatever it is and it's just the ego just finds all these different ways to to manifest to (laughs) re-emerge yes exactly (laughs) right (laughs) and that i think to me is a little bit of the value of psychedelics it's sort of you you keep stepping back into that experience on a somewhat regular basis, can it be a way to really just shatter your small little sense of self? Right. Shadow and dissolve. You, you know, if I go back to the to Robin Carhart Harris, he's developed an ego dissolution scale. And, you know, it has six or seven items that relate to that mystical experience of oneness and feeling at one with the world and that it's ineffable and, and calm and wonderful. I, mean, I can't even remember the items. But in the development of the scale, he also had items for the opposite experience, which is basically ego inflation. And those items are 
basically, I, f- I feel like the king of the world. I'm super confident. My feelings are more important than other people's. <laughs> I mean, it's very ego inflated. And so those were the items that he statistically contrasted with the ego disillusion scale. But it's a great ego inflation scale where those items are all warning signs that you desperately have to get to a psychotherapist immediately. <laughs> you know, as soon as you begin to think you're more important or, or better than, or, you know, those kinds of things, or that your mission is more important than other people's desires, those are the warning signs. The other big warning, besides the ego inflation, is the spiritual bypass. And I, I imagine you and your colleagues are, talk about that as well. I mean, Go that ahead was and implicit. define it for people who might not know, though. It's well, it was, it, was, it was implicit. It's in your description of someone sort of saying, you know, of a, a, a guru who's behaving badly saying, you know, I'll give you some of my Shakti put. And what he's really doing is just seducing someone. So he's describing it in spiritual terms, but really it's basically a rape. And this happens in the Amazon with shaman. And it's happened in pretty much every every religious system where something is described as a spiritual process when really it's a psychological domination or even violent act. And so within a person, the description that I give generally is this woman came to see me and talked about her experience of, of the spirit of ayahuasca as the divine feminine. And how that was so wonderful for her. She was a young woman, and it was such a wonderful experience to find herself in communication with the divine feminine. And she went on like this for a good 20 minutes or so, until finally the therapist in me couldn't stand it anymore. And I interrupted her, and I said, and tell me, how's your relationship with your mother? And she burst into tears. And obviously, that's where the work needed to be, not with an archetype, not with a spiritual archetype of the divine feminine. That was a wonderful gift she had, but the work she needed to do was with her mother. <laughs> and that's the standard basic psychological work. I, you know, I always say, you know, my 35 years in private practice, I did, you know, the kindergarten work, the work on the family of origin, the basic foundation work the work with, you know, what, what's, what was the attachment with the mother? How did that play out? How does that influence all your relationships? It was the work on the, the family of origin. So, that, so the right. spiritual bypass was thinking, you know, about the divine feminine when the psychological work was with her own mother. Okay, yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, some it, it all goes back to Freud, right? <laughs> back just um, to the basics. I'm sorry, <laughs> and I'm not even that Freudian, but the family of origin is pretty powerful. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, it makes sense. Like sometimes, truly, like the answers or the issues are the most obvious ones, you know, or the most fundamental ones. Well, I, we all have that work to do, and I don't know that it ever goes away completely, but we. We learn to manage our, our personal histories better. And part of that management is being able to have a little distance, what, what was called disidentification from our own history, the way we've constructed ourselves, that we get a little enough distance that we can look at it. And I, I think that's really part of the therapeutic process. And the way it's come out just very, very concretely, I'll just, it's interesting that this is the same story from two very different people. One was a woman who was writing an article for Vogue magazine. This article was a very big disappointment. But what she did mention was she had one authentic ayahuasca ceremony, and she saw how she was behaving with one of her daughters, that she was a too busy mother. She wasn't giving her the attention she needed. And by watching herself during the ceremony, she saw herself kind of ignoring her daughter and not having time for her. And the next morning, what she basically did, she went home and she made special time with that daughter and she's continued to do that. So she changed her pattern, changed her behavior when she saw how she was neglecting her as a mother. And that's often the kind of thing that happens that people 
she actually saw herself as if it were a TV show. And she could make a decision about, do I want to change my behavior or not? And she clearly made a commitment to it. Chelsea Handler, you know, sort of the comedian who had a, a Netflix yes, sort and of I saw get drunk her with Chelsea Show. Oh yeah. She's <laughs> but funny. You know, I know, and everybody object. Well, everybody I know criticized her for it, but I thought she was very brave to go back the second time and have a real experience for herself. And it was the same experience where she didn't like how she was treating one of her sisters. And she went back to the States with a real commitment to reach out to that sister and work on their relationship. And that's what she did. And I think it's, that's the therapeutic, that's one aspect of the therapeutic value of that being able to get outside of yourself and see yourself with a different perspective. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that did take a lot of, a lot of courage for sure. It takes courage. I mean, this is this is one message that I've said to people and trying to really also distinguish ayahuasca from other psychedelics is just and also to to help people understand even if they don't agree with it that it it's really not recreational. And I've just said to people the idea that you would do this for fun if you'd ever <laughs> had done ayahuasca, I mean, you would it's laughable. I mean, it's it is very powerful and meaningful. I do enjoy doing psychedelics. So I enjoy other psychedelics as many of my friends do, but not ayahuasca. I mean, while I think it's important and I will, I will go back because I found it perhaps the most meaningful, you know, what you have to go through is it would completely render the experience unfit for recreational activity. So I think that's an important message. You know, it does take courage. It, It will make you look at parts of yourself that you don't want to look at. Right. Right. It's not easy. It's not. I've often wished I had fallen in love with a different medicine, <laughs> one that was more fun. <laughs> this is not fun. It's really hard. I mean, I have spent, you know, nights crying during ceremonies. I never thought I could cry for six hours straight, and I have, and and then turned around the next night and cried another six hours. I mean, that's unbelievable for me. And a good bit of my ceremonial time looks an awful lot like food poisoning. So this is not a fun experience. And I consider it amazingly therapeutic. I do too. It's phenomenal. And, and And then just to balance this out, I have to say, you know, it's not right for everybody. And certainly someone who has any his, any history of psychosis or schizophrenia, it's not right for them. It's not worth the risk. People do get in trouble with any of the psychedelics, especially with that kind of history. And we all know not to mix the antidepressants with an ayahuasca ceremony. That has to be, you have to not be on any of the antidepressants. So there, you know, there are some real warning signs. And, and the other thing is in the States, well, the same warning holds true, but it's different in Peru, is you just have to be very careful what situation you enter to drink ayahuasca. And there was, at the MAPS conference in April, there was a, a Brazilian researcher, I think he's the head of ICERS, one of the ayahuasca organizations. And he stood up in front of an American audience and basically said, you people are crazy. You're going into ceremonies with so-called shaman whom you really don't know, and you're drinking some mysterious brew and you have no idea what's in it. What is wrong with you people? And that, that was how he opened his talk. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he has a valid point. We have to be very, very careful where we go and what we drink. There are no easy answers for this. Yeah, that is a great point. I mean, and of course, just a general disclaimer has to be said, working with anything, we can't be encouraging anyone to do something that's illegal, not only for our own liability, but I mean, it's just people need to be aware of that risk, regardless of what country that you're in. And, And part of the whole notion, I think, of speaking out about psychedelics is having a conversation to change that. And we need to do that. But that caveat has to also be added as well. I'd love to ask you you. about, you know, you talk about how ayahuasca really resonated for you. 
And I'm wondering if you've worked with other psychedelics, if you've worked with mushrooms, LSD, anything else personally, and what did you get out of it or not get out of it that's really made you sort of gravitate towards ayahuasca? Well, see, you, you missed the reference to Esalen Institute in the late 60s, which ah, was, of course, the summer of love. Right. <laughs> there were, you know, there were so many psychedelics well, around. done it. I'm just so, wondering if it, those had remained part of your path, like what over time has remained important to you aside from ayahuasca? Well, the theme throughout is the psycho-spiritual journey. That's what's consistent. So even though there were plenty of drugs around in the late 60s in California, I never used them recreationally. It was always part of a spiritual process and journey, and it was always carefully done. And I was in my early 20s, so that's been my approach from the very beginning. So what's essential for me is the the spiritual path and and the development that comes along with that. I sort of fell into ayahuasca serendipitously. I didn't seek it. I just kind of signed up for a retreat where it was offered, and I didn't even realize it was going to be offered. So I kind of found my way to a situation after my daughter had been born, I mean grown, grown. So during the time when I was basically a householder raising my daughter, that's a good 25 years or so, I didn't do anything. And so she was finishing graduate her graduate degree, and I was feeling pretty free, and this opportunity came up. And for me, it was part of continuing that process that I had begun pretty early in life. That's what it was for me. And it was almost as if, if I can personalize ayahuasca this way, it was almost as if she came to get me. That's what it felt like. And and so I I felt a real mission to, to do the research and to continue that project. And I, I have often felt like a like I was living up to, I hate to militarize this, but feeling like a, a good soldier doing my assignment. And there were times when it, it was it took all I had to to write the book and get it in on deadline and and complete this project. And and I felt that I had that responsibility. And I asked you earlier, before we went on the air, about your own inspiration to start this podcast, because it seems that that's inspired. Yes, you've picked up on something. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I came back to that. (laughs) Yeah, you know, you totally picked up on that. You are a great psychotherapist without me saying anything. You know, I talked about my intentions for this podcast in detail on the website, but I don't think I really mention this aspect, but the timing is no coincidence. I mean, yeah, I I do view this as project as definitely a result of the unfolding of my ayahuasca experience in May, no question. After that time in May, I really started to write and talk about psychedelics publicly for the first time. And I was doing that on a previous blog that I had which was just my yoga blog. And I found, you know, the hacking consciousness frame was actually most important for sort of putting together my various interests and speaking to an audience that I wanted to reach. But yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It is, it's kind of inconceivable that I would be doing this now without having gone on the ayahuasca retreat in, in May. And when people talked on that retreat about how it would unfold for you in not only weeks, but months to come, that was really hard for me to understand. And I, I, I'm sure it's very hard for some listeners to understand if they haven't done ayahuasca, but there's something about this medicine that does that. And it really, it definitely frustrates my logical mind way of understanding the world, you know, but it's, it's really yes. been a lot about opening into intuition and living from a place more of intuition than just my logical mind all the time. Yes, yes. And there is a, a sense of being inspired or even guided. And there's a, a willingness on, I can say it for myself rather than you, but there is a willingness on my part to step up to what I felt I was being asked to do. I mean, Jung has this wonderful way of describing destiny 
that you rise up, you have the choice to rise up to meet your destiny, to rise up to engage with what is unfolding. And that's what I felt that I did, I, that I rose up to, to do the research. That was what was, that's what was calling me, is, is the best way I can put it. That's what I felt, that I should step into that job. And the same with the book. And that's what I'm hearing you say with the podcast and sort of coming out more with your own interest. Absolutely. And quite explicitly, on the last night of the ceremony, we did eight in two weeks, which was a lot. And on the last wow. night, oh yeah, it was oh, it was boy. serious work. And on the last night, that was one of the messages of ayahuasca was, how do we have the courage like can you find the courage to talk about difficult things? And a lot of those were related to things that I'm talking about on this podcast, which were very explicit messages. Even that night, do you have the courage to speak not only about ayahuasca, but about psychedelics? Do you have the courage to have an honest conversation about religion and talk about what's helpful, but also what's really not helpful and help to find common ground for people who are on both sides of that debate. And that's interesting to hear that you, you got that message as well and that that's common for people because that was yes. definitely a big part of it for me. And that is, and it still manifests itself in my, my day-to-day life, even five months later. Yes. Yes. That is very hard to describe. It's, I think it's hard for people to imagine who have not experienced that but one of the book titles that I loved was Ayahuasca in My Blood. It's the sense that we are changed in a very essential way and called to live our lives in, in a slightly different way, to invest our energy differently, or as you say, to have the courage to, to open up and talk about things. It's there's something that's, a, that's, there's an essential difference. And people say it kind of more colloquially. They say, well, after the ceremony, I felt like my DNA was changed. There's an essential difference in me. So people describe it differently, but it's the same theme. Yeah, there's that language around reprogramming again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. Like rewriting the, yeah. the code right, of your software, if we're using that analogy. Right. I'm mindful of your time, but I'd love to ask you one more question if you're okay with it. Sure, sure. I'm just so interested in sort of what distinguishes ayahuasca as a plant versus other medicines. And I think one way of really sort of honing in on what makes it unique is comparing the ayahuasca experience versus an experience of synthetic DMT. Now, I find this interesting because if we were only accepting neuroscientific explanations of how these substances work, we should be able to think, well, it's the exact same chemical operating on my brain in the exact same way. So fundamentally, it should be the same experience. You know, a a former college you know, a psychopharmacologist could say, well, the way you ingest a drug is different, you know, injecting, smoking, drinking. That's true. But fundamentally, I would imagine I haven't done a lot of those other drugs where people do those different things, but there's something about, it wouldn't be that fundamentally different of experience if you were to do some of those other drugs in different forms. It may hit you harder and be more intense and more addictive, but there's something that's fundamentally different about drinking ayahuasca as a plant versus the synthetic DMT. And that is this really spirit-like maternal sense. And I think that kind of shows the limitations of the neuroscientific explanation of ayahuasca and of these substances generally perhaps of mushrooms as well. And I'm just curious what you think of that. I don't know if you have much experience speaking with people who have just done synthetic forms of DMT, but I'd be very curious to hear your your take on how we view things through these different models. Yeah, I have talked with people who have done that, and I know there are some similarities in the visions, even though the in, 
the intensity is very different. But I think it was Stan Groff who said that what was unique what was unique for him about ayahuasca was the sense of this therapeutic presence. And I have not heard people talk about that when they're smoking DMT. I've not heard that sense of a, an ongoing relationship with a spirit of a plant. But I don't know. I haven't done a study on it. I haven't talked to enough people. But that seems to be what's really unique about ayahuasca. Maybe it's true for peyote and mushrooms to a certain extent, but it's very strong with ayahuasca. And the mystery remains. So I think MAPS was trying to put together a a research study on ayahuasca, and they were going to use freeze-dried ayahuasca, which is what they're using for research in Barcelona, Spain, and for that research team. And they're doing a lot of work with that, and it is a way to control dosage and potency. And MAPS wanted to do it with indigenous shaman. So when they showed the shaman the capsules of this freeze-dried ayahuasca, the shaman said, we can't work with that. The spirit is gone. So that was the end of that research study. <laughs> but you see that there's, there's the, the mystery remains, and I think we have to respect the mystery. And it, it makes this medicine far more difficult to research but I think it's essential. And also when we drink ayahuasca, we're getting a combination of plants. So we're also getting harmaline and, and other, other chemicals as well besides the DMT. And there's more research coming out about how important they are, especially for neurogenesis. There's a lot that we don't know. And, and the, the tea, the ayahuasca tea, is far more complex than an injection or snorting or smoking. It's a more complex mix. And you know what? Traditionally, we get in trouble when we intensify, you know, the shift from coca leaves to cocaine. We get in trouble that way. For myself, I'll stick with an authentic shaman and the tea. Yes. The coca leaves, coca tea, not such a big deal. Cocaine, not a good idea. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Well, Rachel, I want to thank you for doing all the work that you do and for writing this book. It's a huge resource and amazing piece of wisdom for everyone who's interested in ayahuasca. And I highly recommend to anyone who's either worked with ayahuasca or is thinking about it to read your book, Listening to Ayahuasca. And I'd love to just give you a chance to tell folks where they can find the book and where they can possibly find you as well. Well, the, the book is, of course, is on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and, and people can find me on, on my website, listening to ayahuasca.com. And there's a section there. Well, there are videos and, and podcasts there and a section on ask Rachel where people can write in and ask me questions and I, I answer them personally. It always takes me longer than, than I like to admit, but I do respond. And some of them I add to, the, to that part of the website. So it's listening to ayahuasca.com. Are you active on social media or is the website the best way to get in touch with you? Well, that's the best way to write to me. And I do have, I am on Facebook, but I'm more likely to respond to the website. Okay, great. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. And I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it too. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Take care, Rachel. Thank you. Bye-bye. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hackingconsciousness. consciousness.